Welcome to Unfiltered, the newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and esteemed leader in helping healthcare professionals prevent and address burnout. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation as nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts. They'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Then I'll pose a question for the two of them as patient based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Jonathan, welcome to Unfiltered. Hey, Robbie, great to be back again. There are two views about American healthcare. There are some who point to the massive U.S. expense compared to other countries and view it through the lens of abundance. Then there are those who view the tens of millions of Americans who can't access care and the day-to-day stresses on clinicians and view it through the lens of scarcity. What do you think we have too much of in American medicine today, and what do we have too little of? I love the question, and it gets to the issue of our perspective determining how we behave and how we lead. Uh, I can tell you from my own experience as a cardiologist who's currently practicing, uh, we have uh, too many patients on our schedule often in uh, too little time to spend with them. So we have. Uh, I would say too much, um, too much patient care at times. We also have too much administrative burden. So clinicians used to be uh, enough if they were doing the job of patient care, but now we do clerical work, which is, makes up a good part of our time. So we have too much administrative burden. And then on the patient side, we spoke last time, Robbie, about we have too many costs. So there's costs to our patients in terms of the cost of medications, the cost of the expensive tests that we're ordering uh, that we often don't even know about, which leads to another too much of. There's too much uncertainty uh, about how much patients are paying and what they can expect. Um, so those are some things that I think we have too much. We have also we have too much overwhelm uh, as, a, as a clinician who works with doctors and nurses. Right now we have too much psychological stress and um, not enough uh, care given to, to providers who have experienced uh, trauma during COVID, uh, watching people die with not enough resources. So those are some things we have too much of, too little, we have too little access. My wife waited over an hour yesterday to take one of my kids to the doctor. Uh, the carpenter for our house yesterday had to leave the doctor's office after waiting an hour and a half. So we have too little access to healthcare. That's a given. And then I can tell you, and this comes on the personal side as well, we have too little access to mental health care, uh, which is a rising concern. Those are just a few that come to mind, Robbie. How about you? Let me first ask you a question, then let me, then let me talk about my own uh, views on it. How much control do you think that either doctors or patients or anyone has over the abundance and scarcity in American medicine today that you've outlined so broadly? So uh, I think that individual doctors, individual patients have next to no control at all. I think a lot of the control lies in the hands of leaders in healthcare uh, and the, the teams that work underneath them. 
But what we do have control of is the way we allow the relative lack of whatever the resource is or abundance to affect our personal well-being. How far uh, do we let these uh, cause stress, which can lead to worsening of our health? So if I'm a heart patient waiting for six months or four months to have a certain test done or see a doctor, it's going to make my stress levels go up and make things go worse. The control we have is how we, uh, number one, we have to frame it in our minds. We say, you know, there may be a shortage of resources, but I'm not going to let that affect my well-being. And on the other hand, there are times when it can be a matter of life and death, and we need to become resourceful. If we don't have the resources we need, we have to become our own advocates and look elsewhere, sometimes even outside the traditional medical system. Um, so we have very little control over these systemic forces, but we have lots of control over our own mindset and whether we let the perception, this is something we have to talk about, scarcity, whether we're talking about you know, medical resources or others, it's, it's two things. It's a perception that we have, which can often be wrong. If I was raised in a house of poverty and I didn't have enough money to pay the bills, I'm going to come to every life experience with a sense of scarcity. So if I have to wait for five minutes for anything, that might be too long. We all know people like that. Uh, on the other hand, um, scarcity is, is measurable. It's not just a perception. It's also something that if, if I compare my system in North Carolina to your system in California, I can measure the difference and tell you that we have a scarcity of a certain resource. So there's, I think, two aspects of the discussion around scarcity. There's the individual perception, which has to do with uh, certain cognitive biases that we come to. And then there's the, the actual measurable objective facts of scarcity versus abundance. I mean, I was thinking you mentioned your carpenter and your wife's experience having to wait. I know there's going to be some days that someone comes into your office for what they think is a routine follow-up and you diagnose that they're having an acute myocardial infarction. Mm -hmm. And for the next hour and a half, you try to get them to the cath lab, to the OR, wherever they have to go, and everything gets held up. Those emergencies happening in medicine and we can't do anything about it. It's just part of the job and it's the reality, but it shouldn't be every day. And if every day is a day that we are behind by the time noon comes by an hour, we spend the rest of the day uh, losing time, not gaining time. That tells me we have a system problem and something hopefully under our control has to change or we continue to experience scarcity and I don't want to say abundance, but at least we be able to keep our feet under us rather than constantly uh, falling down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. The systemic problem, I can tell you those emergencies come up, but the systemic problem of access relates to understaffing typically, um, whether it's not enough physicians for a, a local community the shortage of one physician in a group of five uh, because of burnout or because of uh, early retirement can make all the difference in the world. And now you're talking about waiting for more months. Often it's not even the physicians, it's the nursing staff. We have some hospital beds that just sit empty. We can't get patients upstairs. So we're talking about access to an outpatient uh, care visit. We're also the same thing applies access to an inpatient bed. It has to do with understaffing. Uh, as well, Robbie. Is the problem we're not training enough 
physicians. We can come to nurses in a second. That is a, I think there's no question that we do not have enough nurses in the United States to manage the inpatient beds. But my view is the uh, we may have too many patients in the hospital and not enough at home receiving care. But do we not have enough doctors in the United States, for your opinion? Yeah, I mean, the projections right now uh, predict a significant shortage of physicians uh, of by the year 2030 of around 100,000 physicians, somewhere between 80 and 120,000 by the year 2030. And those are uh, pretty consistent estimates. If you look on the nursing side, uh, the predictions by 2030, there's a shortage of nurses between 60,000 and 80,000, anticipating a, a 6% uh, growth in the, in the need for nurses. Um, so I, I think that that's not only because we're not training enough physicians, I think we're hemorrhaging physicians. I think if you look right now, all surveys say that doctors, at least one in four, at least one in four have plans to leave medicine or to cut back or to scale back their schedules within the next two years. So uh, I, I don't think it's as simple as we don't have enough doctors coming in. I think we're losing uh, doctors on the back end to early retirement and uh, going into other industries. Again, I want to keep pushing from the standpoint of how would every other industry approach a problem like this? It is a constriction in what's often called the supply chain. And what you would do is you'd put additional resources into the problem. Uh, and you, in, in medicine, it would be other clinicians. It would be technology. It would be different ways of managing patients. It would be group visits. It would be ways to be able to increase flow through. Because if the problem is, as you described, then we're in a vicious cycle where tomorrow will be worse than today and the day after even worse than tomorrow if we don't take action. And I don't see us taking very much action. Yeah, I have a, I have a particular bias uh, and a lens through which I see the solutions that you're asking for. Uh, I appreciate that access, improving access to care comes by using a team model, by using APPs. Instead of having one physician see one patient, you can have one physician supervising three APPs who can see 20 patients. We can use telemedicine. That doesn't solve the core issue uh, because that really forces physicians into new roles that they haven't yet been trained for, which we can get into, roles of being leaders of large teams rather than individual physicians, which is how the traditional culture of medicine has been for hundreds of years. It's the doctor and the patient. And what you're describing is a completely new way uh, of having us care for patients. My particular bias is it's a human uh, stopgap. We are asking humans to care for other humans at rates that are untenable. We either need to um, expand the number of doctors, like you were saying, or treat them in a way, treat them in a way that they feel so fulfilled in the job that they're doing, like many physicians did just 30 or 40 years ago, so fulfilled that they wouldn't even dream of leaving. You asked me to think about it from the perspective of another business, whether you're talking about Zappos or Amazon or Google, they have strategies for retention of their best employees that start with onboarding. They involve mentoring. They involve uh, lifelong learning and uh, personal growth and career development and coaching. I just don't see us doing that to our most valuable resource in medicine right now, which are our providers. Again, when I look at cardiology, it takes uh, four years of medical school, then you have to do a 
regular uh, residency in medicine, then you have to do your fellowship in cardiology. That's about a decade of time period. We don't have a decade to wait. So I'm looking at what should we do over the next 10 years while we're training more cardiologists, because by the time 10 years pass, if we haven't done something, we will have even fewer cardiologists so that the number coming out will won't even fill the glass to where it is today. So yeah. that's the problem I'm trying to figure out for American medicine, because I agree with you with everything you said. I'm just looking for a solution rather than simply um, finding ways to keep staying in the place that we are. How do we get better? Absolutely. So that's the next question is once we've sort of outlined the spectrum of, of challenges we face, I, I'm happy to say that from cardiology, at least the American College of Cardiology and other boards are starting to recognize we need to train a new way of being a cardiologist. And this will apply with other fields as well. Uh, so the American College has their own, you know, department, they have their own well-being um, board, essentially, that's looking at these things. And uh, number one, I think it starts back in training now. So in medical schools, it's not enough anymore. So starting this year, last year, we have to introduce chat GPT training or, you know, generative AI. How can physicians leverage that to essentially care better and care for more patients more efficiently? That's number one. Uh, we can't simply put that burden on the physicians. We also have to increase their rewards. So as you know, you can't continue to ask an employee to do more with less. Eventually there's a breaking point. So we haven't discussed this, but salaries matter, compensation matters. And if we're paying a football player 10 or $20 million, uh, whatever, how often, a year, and uh, the average physician's salary is 250 to 350,000, whatever the specialty is, uh, that might not be enough. I'm not saying that salaries is all that it takes. There have to be other aspects of well-being. We have to get serious about um, valuing time off for physicians, um, growing communities of physicians, giving physicians a sense of power within their organization, getting back to the medical students. Uh, it's training them in how to lead a team. We don't, I didn't learn how to lead a team in medical school. And yet what you're saying is we have to now think more outside the box. One doctor and one patient is not going to cut it right now. So thinking about new ways of providing that care, uh, leveraging new technologies. Uh, those are some ideas, Robbie. That, that's all I've got right now. Well, you asked me about my view. And in terms of scarcity, I think that one of the things that's most missing in American medicine is collaboration and cooperation. I think we view things through silos. And a good example, you just described to me what cardiology is doing. When I look at cardiology, one of the big problems is how do we diminish the number of patients who need cardiologists? And we mm -hmm. diminish them, I think, by preventing the kind of um, heart attacks, heart failure, the kinds of problems that are avoidable. And then you say, okay, well, how do we avoid that? And I think fundamentally underlying the biggest problem in the American healthcare system right now is the lack of sufficient primary care. I think primary care has been overwhelmed and has mm -hmm. become a triage referral specialty when it should be the primary 
care delivery. And there, I completely agree with you. We do not have enough primary care physicians by a long shot, but we have an opportunity. And that is that every year, there are a thousand medical students graduating medical school, passing all the exams who can't get residency. And if you look at the cost of creating an additional thousand positions in primary care annually, we could, in a relatively short amount of time, I'll say five years, be able to train several thousands. As you know, the training is a approximately three years, three to four years, depending upon if they do a chief residency year. And we could have 3,000 more primary care physicians if elected officials would fund those positions. And if we would start to redefine that job, it wouldn't provide the solution in a year or two because you have to train the individuals. And in particular, and I like what you said about ChatGPT, how would they use technology to help patients on a day-to-day -day basis avoid becoming diseased from chronic illness and those who have chronic disease avoiding the complications from it? Because if we could decrease the number of heart attacks, uh, strokes not in cardiology, but uh, neurology and other disciplines like that, but if we could decrease those problems by 30%, all of a sudden, the day-to-day -day workload would change, and we'd create a lot more time for the specialists who then take care of the problems that develop when we don't prevent them in the first place. Mm. Robbie, you said a lot there, and I, it really opens my eyes a bit to, uh, number one, the importance of shifting towards preventative care. Um, part of the reason that we don't have access to the cardiologist really is that not everyone needs to see a cardiologist in the first place. And sometimes we forget that on the receiving end. So um, how can we shift rapidly in this country? We've been, you know, people since Dean Ornish and Andrew Weil have been singing this song for 40 years, and yet we are not incentivizing prevention in this country. How can we do that? Not in decades now, because we don't have time, but in five years. You mentioned one solution, which is uh, how can we get more primary care residents, family practice residents? Another one comes to mind readily. Uh, in the world that I'm in, I work with a lot of coaches, uh, not just executive coaches, I'm talking about health coaches and fitness coaches. And you know that this is a huge industry. Uh, patients, once they leave my office, they pay thousands of dollars for coaches. But these coaches are not being used to their maximum potential, and many of them are looking for work. I'm wondering if there's a way that we can leverage non-medical uh, experts in motivating people to live healthier lives starting at younger ages if we can somehow make them partners in healthcare, uh, in a new vision of healthcare that's more preventative that involves uh, whether it's a health coach a life coach uh, you know, fitness etc to extend what really should not be happening in the doctor's office uh, especially in a special super specialist office i spend a lot of my time robbie talking about the most basic nutrition, exercise, diet, ways to prevent diabetes or to help my patients manage their diabetes. I'm not going to denigrate my own skill, but there are people who are better suited right now in our failing system to be doing these tasks. I concur completely. 
I mean, what we have too much of right now, I think, is fragmentation. And we the part of the fragmentation is we have a very narrow definition of what's inside medicine. And we're missing a lot of opportunities. I'm a big believer, like you are, in lifestyle medicine and the opportunities it can have to avoid diabetes, to avoid uh, heart failure, to avoid many of the problems, hypertension, uh, that today are filling in doctors' offices and getting pills and medical treatment that could be prevented and avoided in the first place. And as you say, there are a lot of people out there with the skill, we just haven't figured out how to integrate it inside what we think of as medical practice. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Let me turn it over to you. What's on your mind these days? Mm. Well, Robbie, I'm reading a book right now uh, by someone that I respect, which is Adam Grant, and it's called uh, Think Again. And it's bringing up a lot uh, in my mind uh, about another book that I read called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning uh, behavioral economist, psychologist who famously in the 1970s introduced this concept of heuristics, which is sort of how we make decisions. And as I'm looking at this, I see that it really ties into part of the conversation we're having, which is we in medicine, healthcare, uh, have a certain way of doing things. And I think uh, we are getting kind of stuck and calcified in the way that we have been doing things all along, that it's really hard to see uh, the fallacy, the, the, the mistakes that we're making. And it's certainly hard to see new solutions, which even now, uh, some of them are coming to mind speaking to you. So this, this concept of cognitive bias and heuristics is, I think, something that should be taught in medical school. Uh, in fact, any industry, really, but specifically in medical school. And it's this idea that we think that we are making the best decisions. You know, it's part of our wiring. We believe that we're right, but if we look at all the information that's coming at us in any moment, uh, it far outweighs our little brain's ability to make good decisions. So we have these shortcuts called heuristics. And what I'm seeing in my own world is that they come up every day, uh, whether uh, I'm a cardiologist, if I uh, saw somebody with a heart attack last week and uh, someone comes to me today with chest pain, there's a natural uh, jumping of my mind. It's called the recency bias. Because I recently saw someone with chest pain, I may go out of my way to worry about uh, that, that diagnosis when someone objectively would say, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money. Uh, there are so many of these biases, Robbie, there's 180 of them at recent count that we all fall prey to. Uh, there's something called the beauty bias, where if a, a handsome, uh, fit man comes into our office complaining about something, we're less likely to take it seriously because we assume that he's healthy. Uh, the, there's anchoring bias, confirmation bias. I wanted to know from you, I know that you know, you've had so many leadership roles. Has it come up for you, this, this idea where you see either other people or yourself getting stuck in certain ways of thinking, taking certain mental shortcuts, that you've noticed that and had to kind of outstep or sort of sidestep those in order to come to better solutions. You're raising some great points and talking about two authors that I enjoy very much and have read much, many of their works. And I think of this in two categories. 
There's the biases you're describing. These are the human errors. And I am one who has certainly been prone to those errors like other people as well. And I think they fall into the category that when we have a view, an opinion, we search for uh, information that supports our view and we reject ones that don't, the confirmation bias you're describing. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes very hard to find mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate in much of my career that I've had people working with me who were willing to tell me, you're wrong, Robbie. And I respected them enough to at least reconsider. But I think often that's not the case. And I think particularly in day-to-day -day practice, because we're often not surrounded by others. We're in an exam room with a patient by ourselves. And it's actually part of why I'm optimistic about the role that generative AI, not what we have today, but future generations of it will have, because it will be able to tell us about our biases, both when we're making a bad clinical decision and when we're making a biased one when it comes to patient care. And we know that implicit bias, particularly around uh, socioeconomics and race, sit the, in our minds very deeply. So I think those are those are in place, and I think that we can address them. And as I say, I think that a generative AI will be able to tell us, uh, have you considered a different possibility? Uh, the practice you're doing is not what you normally would do, and point it out in a way that can allow us to see it. Because the problem with the biases, and Kahneman did won a Nobel Prize for his description about it, is that we're not aware of it. So how do you solve a problem you're not aware of it? The first step is you've got to become aware of it. And that's where I think something like, hopefully, if you're surrounded by other people, they can point it out to you. But if not, a technological solution is possible. But you're also describing in the work of Adam Grant a second problem, which to me, I think, getting back to the conversation we had about the system of medicine is in place, which is that the world changes and we don't notice it. We don't notice it because it happens so slowly, but it happens year over year. So a common area that I view, because I see it as fundamentally problematic, is fee-for-service reimbursement versus capitation. If you go back, I don't know, half a century, you know, my grandfather had a heart attack and they put him in the hospital where he spent a week, and all they had him there for was in case he had an arrhythmia, they could resuscitate him. There's nothing else they had, maybe a little digitalis if they had, had some heart failure. That was 50 years ago. That's not a long, long time. And you could pay a physician to take care of him on a fee-for-service basis because you knew that what the doctor would do would be to come in in the morning and round to make sure, say hi to him and be available should there be a cardiac event. But that's not what we face today. 60% of Americans have chronic disease. They have a problem every single day. They don't need care for their chronic disease. They need help avoiding the chronic disease. They need to be able not to have their complications managed. They need to have the complications avoided. And that's not a problem that can be well handled through a fee-for-service, I call it a retrospective, Payment 
rather than capitation. And don't get me wrong, capitation has been misused. It's been used by insurance companies with prior authorization and other problems to get in the way of patients. I'm talking about capitation at the delivery system level. And when you start to rethink how American medicine is structured, you can start to see that, wow, if we had capitation, we'd have to have groups of doctors because you can't be capitated as an individual. And if you had groups of doctors, you want to make sure that they're both in primary care and in specialty care, and you better have collaboration and cooperation. And now all of a sudden, the opportunities to be able to lower costs while raising quality by making certain there's no medical errors, by being certain that you've optimally managed patients with chronic disease, that you've brought in lifestyle medicine, all these pieces start to fall into place in a way that there's this tension and this conflict when it's in a fee-for-service world. So I think this rethinking and recognizing that this very slow change over time, 50 years after my grandfather's heart attack, is an example of where we need to stop, rethink, and have the courage and the willingness to make the change happen. Mm. It's such a great summary of uh, both of those authors, and I love your approach uh, to thinking about rethinking and your honesty and admitting your own human uh, frailty, I guess, in that sense, which I, I often do. When it comes to capitation, Robbie, you mentioned the need to stop stop thinking about ourselves as physicians, as individuals, because you, you wouldn't capitate an individual, it's the team really. And it's not just the inpatient team, it's the outpatient team that's responsible for the overall costs of uh, one event of care and ongoing care. But there's a, there's a challenge that I think we need to address uh, for that to happen. And that is this idea that many of us as doctors have, uh, whether it's in medical school or whether, whether we think about the ideal of a doctor, not as a team member, not as someone who communicates his, his or her ideas openly and freely, and that is interested in other people's ideas. The typical physician that I know, Robbie, in this world is someone who believes that he or she knows best. And uh, please don't interrupt my autonomy. I'm the one who makes the decisions here. So how do we um, take us where we need to go which is this new collaborative model, so we can move towards capitation and limiting costs uh, against the culture of medicine, which you're an expert in, and you've written two books on the subject. How do we shift that culture to take individuals to more of a group think? You've talked about the notion of physician autonomy, and I think it is a problem in how we think about it. And by the way, it's not unique to medicine. Now, there have been 60 different industries in which people have looked at this question. Can you as an individual make a better judgment or is there evidence-based approaches that are gonna be superior? Every one of us can remember, as you, as you uh, remarked on before, the patient in whom the, the rule didn't work. And that does happen. But if you look at American medicine, what you see is that the tremendous deviation from the rules has put us in a situation where we have more disease and less health than we need. I mean, take hypertension. We know that it can be managed about 90% of the time, and yet we only do it 60% of the time. Where you look at preventive screening, we know that colon cancer 
that almost half of the cases have a long history where they can be where the tumor can be found before it becomes malignant, that the adenoma can be found before it becomes malignant, or the tumor can be found before it invades into the wall of the bowel. And yet we only do colon cancer screening 60% of the time. Um, we think about doing colonoscopy all the time rather than fit testing in low-risk patients. We could go on and on about all the different ways that individuals make decisions that they think they're better at but the data says that actually the evidence-based approaches are superior. And as you say, I've written about the culture of medicine. It's a beautiful culture. It's what allowed us to be able to take care of patients early in the COVID pandemic when we didn't have the protective gear we needed, when we didn't know what to do. And yet doctors, as they've done for five millennia, we're there at the patient bedside providing the care. It's a beautiful culture of medicine, but it's also a culture of medicine that creates difficulty. And I think this autonomy versus information is one of the uh, fundamental bedrock difficulties that sit there. We can spend a lot more time talking about the technological side, but I'll throw out an answer to your question about what to do about it. How do you start to shift it? And I think we need to start to understand group excellence. And group excellence to me is just being on teams. You can be the individual who's going to win the game or the race, but most of the time you want to be part of a team. And there are some people who say, I don't want to be part of a team. I just want to be an individual. But most of us, I think, enjoy that opportunity to have integration um, with colleagues, to have collaboration, cooperation. It's been taken out. I mean, it used to be in the hospital. You'd have people coming in the morning and rounding, uh, having breakfast together, and people don't round as much. They're in their offices. They're much more isolated. We haven't been able to understand group excellence. And again, it's why I go back often to capitation, because capitation creates that necessity. You know, you talked earlier about income, and income is a driver. You know, what Upkin Sinclair say, you can't get a person to be able to see a new idea when it's going to undermine that individual's income. And capitation starts to align it. It becomes more important if you're a cardiologist to make sure that the primary care physician has the resources and has the time to help patients avoid the heart attack, avoid the cardiac problem, as much as your ability to either take care of them when they get sick, or if you were an interventionalist, to be able to do the procedures to reverse the occlusion that sits in place. And we have not in medicine emphasized group excellence. And by group excellence, I don't mean small, narrow groups. I mean big groups of doctors. We haven't celebrated it. We haven't recognized the superior performance that's possible. And I think until we do that, we're going to stay stuck. I often think of American medicine as a 19th century cottage industry. And that's really the way that we approach it. And autonomy is a component of that. It's part of that culture. And I think group excellence is what needs to replace it. Hmm. And Robbie, what does that look like uh, on an education side? How, do we begin in medical school teaching the success models, spotlighting when teams uh, are successful, where individuals fail, teaching where 
um, outside feedback is helpful in overcoming our individual limitations and biases. Uh, is that part of uh, teaching in business schools for healthcare leaders to teach about team excellence? Um, where, how do we do that? There are two parts to the question you're asking. The first is how do we help everyone to be comfortable being part of a team? And I think it has to be built into medical school. And it's not. As you know, medical school, particularly in the first couple of years, is spent um, often now at home watching lectures. Uh, it's, it's, built, it's built around memorization of a lot of facts. It's the wrong era. We're an era of data and information the real question becomes, how do teams use technology to be able to figure out how to solve problems? I mean, you and I both know the Krebs cycle is taught in medical school. None of us have ever used it since the day we passed our examinations. But if you wanted to know about it, you have an iPhone in your pocket that has it. Why make people memorize it? The real question is, how do you apply that iPhone that today has unlimited knowledge in your pocket and in soon generative AI that will have even more information in your pocket. Remember, information in medicine is doubling every 72 days. No human can keep up with that. Chat GPT, if it's loaded appropriately, pre-trained, it has no problem at all. This is going to have to be the future of medicine, teaching people how to, in medical school, work with others to access modern information that sits in place. But there's also a leadership issue. And I wrote a, actually an article from the New England Journal of Medicine about oh, almost a decade ago. We're in the fourth year medical school. And as you know, the fourth year medical school isn't very much. Most of the time is spent looking at uh, getting a residency, figuring out how to get interviews, at least pre prior to COVID. And I think increasingly more in the future. Uh, every medical student should spend a month in business school and in business school learning basic business principles, but most importantly, learning leadership, how to put together teams, how to motivate people, how to uh, help everyone focus on the same destination to provide the assistance to allow them to be successful. There's a whole series of skills that are necessary, but I think it's also highlighting both the successes and the failures and calling the failures failures. And when I look at population health, when I look at value-based medicine, we're failing. We don't do a good job. And the fact that American life expectancy is going down, costs are going up, uh, medical errors are persisting, maternal mortality is rising. We could go down a litany of areas where we need to stop and say, an individual physician doing a great job is just not enough. And we still have the belief that if every individual does a great job, that the system will work. And that was true in the past. It's not true now. And if we have something in abundance, it's an unwillingness to recognize the problems and to make the changes that are needed. Hmm. So, so powerful. You've given me a lot to think about there, Robbie. Um, what my takeaway is from really many of the themes that you've been discussing is about the need for collaboration uh, and moving into an era in healthcare where we learn to integrate uh, with our teams uh, in other job families as well. And coming back to the individual psychological aspects, in order to do that, we need something that there's a scarcity of, which is humility. 
uh, and so and so I think we have work to do both on individual level, but also uh, training our future leaders and and hopefully we can speak about this another time. You mentioned communication uh, between colleagues. I, I noticed there's a scarcity of that between uh, providers and doctors and administrators. There's huge divides there. So what you're asking and what you're suggesting and what's needed is a real time moment to moment communication uh, vertically and horizontally across a system because of this rapid rise in complexity. And yet we don't have these modes and channels of communication that are wide open and effective. And I think that needs to be an important part as we move forward is how do we communicate a real time uh, what our individual needs and concerns are so we can truly work as a team. You said it perfectly, Jonathan. Let's turn it over to Jeremy from the standpoint of the patient to pose a question. So earlier you were talking about the shortage of primary care physicians. Uh, I know a lot of people, myself included, uh, go to nurse practitioners for their primary care. Uh, what are your thoughts around that? I can tell you personally, um, there uh, it's a hot topic. Uh, it's a hot topic because uh, egos come in. Um, there's a lot of uh, judgments uh, among physicians that unless someone has the MD after their name, they're not good enough. Uh, and then that creates an uphill battle for any extended provider to have to sort of prove themselves. It also creates this question of trust, that which is what you're raising between the patient and, well, does the person have to have an MD or a DO behind their name? My personal experience and in my office is that I work with NPs and PAs all of the time, both in the clinic and in the hospital. And these are my partners. These are people that I trust implicitly. Many of them have more training than I do. And some of them have much deeper insights uh, in certain conditions around the heart that, that even I, I do. So that's my personal experience. Um, and as we touched on earlier, we, we have to, we have to broaden the way we think about how care is given. We can no longer think about, it has to be an MD who delivers one-on-one -on -one patient care. That's not going to cut it anymore. I agree completely, Jonathan, that it's less about the individual and more about the team People from various backgrounds and various training can do a variety of problems. But every time we silo individuals, every time we say, this is your very narrow lane and someone else has another lane and a third lane, you completely eliminate the collaboration, the cooperation, the, the synergies that exist. If every time it's just one plus one, I think, Jonathan, what you described at the beginning is going to get worse and worse with an increasing shortage of care delivery, we need to find the way that the synergies make one plus one equal three, and then four, and then five, and then augment it with technology, not by working harder, but by figuring out the ways to make that accomplish, to be, to be accomplished. And I think within that, we need physicians, we need nurse practitioners, we need physician assistants, we need uh, educators, we need uh, lifestyle medicine coaches. We need over as many people as we can put together in our highest performing teams. And that is what we need to be measuring. Today, we're measuring little units of care. We're building by the unit. And instead, we need to understand how do we 
how do we comprehend the totality of a patient's health? And again, I'll go back to the solution until we change the way that we pay groups of doctors, groups of clinicians, groups of individuals, and we measure it in terms of outcomes. We measure in terms of um, impact on their health. And we measure in terms of being affordable for individuals and for society until we start moving from piecemeal to comprehensive payments, we will get further and further behind. And that's my biggest fear for American medicine. As bad as things are today, tomorrow could be worse. And it's not just throwing more bodies into the battle. It's figuring out how do we collaborate, cooperate, and do a better job providing care and providing health to the American populace. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want to permit more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website at robertperlmd.com or visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl. Jeremy Core and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.